Hey everyone, Trace here. Welcome back to Seeker Plus. Today we're rebroadcasting episode 57, which is all about formation. You know, how did Earth form? How did our solar system form? How did galaxies form? How did the universe form? And in the end, we're going to have a special bit about cannibals. I know that doesn't actually sound like it fits in. It totally, it does. Just, it does. Over the next 40 minutes or so, we're going to dig deep into the evolution and astrophysics and theoretical physics of everything. It's going to be supernova, or super cool, whatever. Let's kick into it. The ultimate question that we ask ourselves pretty much any time, right, is, is why are we here? How did we get here? And scientists have been working on answering that question for as long as there have been scientists. I mean, evolution is a great answer, you know, thanks, Charlie Darwin. But, uh, you know, we evolved over time, over a long, long time. Yeah, now we're homo sapiens sapien, but we started walking upright and we made tools and we started using language and all of these different things as we go backward. And so let's kind of walk through that a little bit. First, no, there are a lot of people out there who say we came from monkeys. We did not come from monkeys. They're like a distant cousin. We are closely related to apes and are, in fact, primates, but we didn't come from them. We share an ancestor with another ancient ape. The gorilla and the chimp also have that same common ancestor, but we all broke off of them and evolved in different ways. The ancestor probably lived between five and eight million years ago, meaning all of the primates that we have split from that and happened back in Africa, obviously. As time went on, uh, species broke off into a variety of different human-like species as well and spread across the planet. Some scientists say about 15 to 20 different species of early man did exist throughout history. And about 60 to 80,000 years ago, our specific ancestors, the Homo sapiens, started to leave Africa, although some say it was a little earlier than that. And uh, we went to Asia, we went to Europe, North and South America, only about 15,000 years ago. Not that long when you look at millions of years of evolution. Homo sapiens have become the only species of human on our planet over that time. Sorry, Neanderthals. <laughs> Sorry, guys. But now we're here, you know, we've evolved our way up and we got the internet. Some stuff happened between leaving Africa and, you know, evolving and stuff. But either way, we got the internet, we got Beyonce, we're good. But going back further, like way further than that, the earliest evidences of life is like the formation of Earth as we know it, right? It changed Earth forever. Last October, there was possible evidence of the earliest life that was found in Australia. 4.1 billion years ago, they think life may have started. 4.1 billion years, that's a long time. And that's 300 million years earlier than previously thought with evidence that we'd found before. So scientists found in Western Australia this fleck of graphite, just a little fleck of graphite. And it was in a 4.1 billion year old crystal that was found in Western Australia. The graphite has a carbon structure, which was similar to carbon that was produced by living organisms. However, they do admit that there are possibilities to how this carbon could have gotten there. They're not 100% sure that it was life, but it's likely. And there has been evidence of organisms in rocks found in Greenland 3.8 billion years ago, Australia 3.5 billion years ago about. And they're both questioned by scientists. They're both controversial. I mean, most evidence that is that old and is that limited is controversial. But even without definite evidence, most scientists agree that life began between 2.7 billion and 3.8 billion years ago. You know, they really narrowed it down there. <laughs> like a billion years, give or take I guess, half billion years, give or take, they admit that this obviously will change. They'll assess and reassess as new stuff is found like they did in Australia. 
The first organisms that evolved were likely single-celled. But that also is kind of shrouded in mystery. It happened billions of years ago. We're not exactly sure what they were, what they did. We just have theories and our best guesses based on the evidence that we found that survived for that many years. Uh, One source that we read put it perfectly. Early on, it was the transition from chemistry to biology, where pre-life was chemistry. Now we've got biology. Basically, a long time ago, the Earth did not have life on it, right? But it did have the building blocks to make life. More specifically, actually, it had the building blocks of the building blocks, you know, like it had the stuff that you make the bricks out of to build the house. (laughs) And once you can make the bricks, then you can do all sorts of other stuff. Organic materials actually came from inorganic materials. There's a theory that you might be thinking of right now. Stop thinking of primordial soup. Just stop. Just pretend like that never happened. Earth's oceans, uh, under the old theory of primordial soup, were full of chemical compounds that was hit with a bunch of lightning strikes like Frankenstein, and that started a reaction that grew the first organic compounds. But the new theory, I don't want to make a pun here, but I'm going to make a pun, holds a little more water. It's about hydrothermal vents on the ocean floor. And essentially, the hot pressurized water from vents, essentially underwater volcanoes or pressure release systems underground, are containing all of these different dissolved gases as well as minerals like iron and nickel. And those things, when they get together, sometimes can cause reactions. We've seen it even today. And the chain reactions that can be caused in these perfect little primitive life environments can essentially cause the emergence of life. This is why NASA is looking for space volcanoes, because... A volcano has heat, minerals, or nutrients, and then that can create life. Of course, there are other theories. There's the RNA world hypothesis, which is, they call it a primordial soup, but still, remember, that's weird. And out of that primordial soup came self-replicating RNA, and that could have happened in the vents as well, the hydrothermal vents. These aren't mutually exclusive theories. Uh, It could have also happened on another planet, space volcanoes again, and then maybe came here on an asteroid in the theory known as panspermia, or the idea that an asteroid crashed and and seeded our planet with life. The RNA are the things that did all of the work, and they existed before DNA existed before life, obviously, as we know it existed, and they stored information just like our DNA does, and they started chemical processes like creating proteins. And this was the reactions that helped create the first life. And obviously, this is all very complicated, and it requires an understanding of a number of different fields of science. And we could do a whole series just on this whole topic, and it's hard to take these complex ideas and sum them up as as concisely as we can. But to put it simply... When the Earth was new, the single cells eventually evolved, becoming cyanobacteria, which are, you know, algae, blue-green algae. Then those organisms started producing oxygen. At the time, there wasn't really oxygen on our planet. This was a waste product of photosynthesis for these early organisms, and they would poop out this oxygen into the sea, and then that would float up into the atmosphere, and after, you know, a long time, like a billion years, because this was like two and a half billion years ago, and then another billion years later, there was enough oxygen in Earth's atmosphere to start evolution, and it was just a whole different planet after that. 800 million years ago, the Placozoa was the last common ancestor of all animals. This is the great, 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 like ellipsis, grandpappy of everyone. But then... 
of course, after that, there's a lot more evolving and diversification of species all across the planet. Organisms started to move on their own. Vertebrates appeared. We went on land. Plants evolved. Insects became a thing. Amphibians, dinosaurs, extensions, repopulations, birds, warm-blooded animals, mammals, primates, us, Beyonce. It's the best. But that's life. And Earth was here before life. But what was that like? You know, we sort of skimmed over that bit. So we're going to have to zoom out a little bit. So after a series of huge space events, Earth formed about four and a half billion years ago. Once it was formed, it was not particularly hospitable. First came the Hadean Eon. Comes from the Greek word Hades. Doesn't make it sound like a very nice place to visit, so known as the underworld. And this is a time that we know very little about because nothing really survived from that period because the Earth formed from space dust and gravity and it started as a molten planet that eventually cooled forming all sorts of different layers of sediment based on any number of different pressures and density changes and things. And as that happened, you know, it's not like they were, somebody was writing it down. Once it cooled enough to form uh, a protoplanet, more or less, we move into a more cooled, solid planet system. And then that's the start of the Archaean Eon, from the word meaning ancient, because this is the time of our oldest rocks, the atmosphere was toxic, it had very small traces of oxygen, and by the end of this era was those first photosynthesizing organisms that I mentioned, the blue-green algae, and that completely changed the planet. So it's kind of giving you a lowdown there. But that's our story. That's how we got here. Earth was created from dust and gravity, which we'll get into very soon, and slowly that transformed into a big magma ball, which is a cool band name, and then an oxygen planet, which made life thrive, and over time, the life split off into different lives, being apes, and then became us and the internet and Beyonce. Now that we know how Earth formed, we can talk about how the solar system formed as a whole. We are not the only solar system, though. You probably knew that, but if you didn't, we're not the only one. Spoiler alert. We're now just beginning to see that there are other solar systems spread around our galaxy. And we've been studying the Milky Way and our own solar system for a long time. And we're just figuring this out because planets are really hard to see, you guys. Really hard. You need to be able to see planets orbiting a sun far, far away in order to determine if you have a solar system or not. And if you don't know if there's a planet there, it's hard to decide when to look at that sun, right? It wasn't until the 1990s that astronomers found strong evidence of planets orbiting other stars. They found planets by detecting their gravitational pull, just a little bit of gravitational pull on the star that they orbit. So think about it this way. If you put a weight on the end of a string and you start spinning in a circle, you would have to lean away from that weight. You know, I don't judge what people do on their weekends, but this is what I do. So you spin around, you lean backward, and you end up, that's what we're looking for in a star far, far away. Another way NASA is looking to find solar systems in far-off parts of the galaxy is by detecting planets that physically pass in front of their star. So essentially, we look at the star and we see a little shadow thing pass in front of it, and that is called a transit, and we look for that, and we can find out what the planet is. Actually, you can find out all sorts of really cool stuff, including what the atmosphere is made of, and it's, it's actually really, really awesome. NASA's Kepler mission is using this observation method, but there's also the French National Space Agency, CNES, and the ESA's Corot mission. Those are looking for these transiting planets and other systems as well. Around 500 different solar systems have been discovered, and we're finding more and more every year. And there are all sorts of candidates that we think might be solar systems that we just have yet to, you know, put that big check mark on. How many are there in our galaxy? It's actually really hard to say because some estimate that there could be tens of billions of them or hundreds of billions of them. You know, at least they're narrowing it down, right? I mean, we used to just have one. It used to just be us. 
We thought we were super unique and awesome. And then it turns out, no, there might be hundreds of billions of you. Kind of makes you feel small, you know? Astronomers have concluded that about 10% of the stars in the universe might have a solar system similar to ours. The solar system, that we call the solar system, because we're super good at names, it's not quite as old as the universe, which is 13.8 billion years, give or take. It's only about 4.6 billion years. And there's a lot going on around the universe and around the galaxy and around the solar system all throughout its history. But we're going to just focus right now on ourselves. A lot of this is theoretical. There was no one there writing it down, and we're looking at what kind of things we can still observe today. So one explanation for the formation of the solar system is the collapse of a large molecular cloud made up of a bunch of different elements. So specifically hydrogen, helium, and a few other heavy elements collapsed and fused together. Molecular cloud, by the way, that thing is known as a pre-solar nebula. So those nebulas you see in Hubble photography, those kind of things, big clouds of gas and dust. What caused the collapse, it's not actually known. It could be gravity, it could be a nearby supernova or star explosion. It could be, you know, all sorts of stuff. So this baby collapses in on itself and gravitation starts to take hold of certain chunks of this cloud. This is called the nebular model, by the way. So when objects in motion are moving around a point, in this case, light elements moving as they gravitate toward each other and kind of fall inward, they start to rotate or spin in something called angular momentum takes over. And when that happens, they spin faster and faster. So think like an ice skater spinning. They bring in their arms or their legs and they spin faster. You can do this in your office chair, although I don't recommend it right now because you you never know where your boss could be watching or something. But it's basically the concept like that, but on a you know, solar system-sized scale. The center of the spin cycle is this little blob. And as more gas falls in toward it, it gets hotter and hotter, and things get crammed closer and closer together, like rush hour on the metro system. Eventually, the center of all this pressure forms into a protostar and has a surrounding disk of gas and dust called a protoplanetary disk or accretion disk. So the planets are formed through a process called accretion in the same way. Those gas and dust disks start to fall toward each other and form planets. So Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars are considered rocky planets. They're the inner planets. They're closer to the sun. They're made of metals and silicates because the sun would have basically melted anything with a low melting point. So they have to have the high melting point of those elements so they can form those planets in that location. Water and ice and other gases, they were relegated to the outer planets where it was a little cooler, allowing cores of bigger planets like Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune to form of ice and other things. Beyond Neptune, out in the Kuiper Belt, things like Pluto could form, chunks of ice and rock mixing together and making all sorts of cool planetary shapes. There's also a lot of asteroids floating around, especially in that area like the Kuiper Belt. But in between Mars and Jupiter, mathematically speaking, there should be a planet. It's not there. Instead, it's an asteroid belt. Now, it's fun to think about, like, maybe there used to be a planet, had this super advanced civilization on it. I've read those sci-fi books, too. But it wasn't. It was actually never a planet. It didn't get destroyed in some apocalypse. Instead, Jupiter's gravity, as Jupiter formed, was so high that a planet tried to form, and it kept getting pulled apart. Thanks, Obama. Jupiter. Thanks, Jupiter. But we still have all of this gas and dust within the protoplanetary disk, right? Well, at some point, the sun 
in the middle, the you know, protostar, eventually becomes a fully-fledged star. It reaches something called hydrostatic equilibrium. And because its nuclear fusion is so strong, it's able to generate a solar wind, and it blows all of that crap away. The solar wind is essentially the side effect of nuclear fusion happening in the sun, and it creates something called a helisphere. And then you have a protected little bit of your own little galaxy you can call a solar system. Sounds pretty simple, right? <laughs> Although, this is just one theory. This is the nebular theory, and it's pretty widely accepted, although there are some problems with it. According to the theory, the planet's axes should all basically be the same because they're all kind of spinning in the same disk, but not all of the planet's axes are the same. There are some other problems with it as well. We just don't know everything about the solar system yet. We're still learning. So where do galaxies come from? No idea. Nobody really knows. But we do have some theories, and some theories agree that shortly after the Big Bang, a little less than 14 billion years ago, the universe started cooling off and hydrogen and helium started forming. Because if you think about hydrogen, it's like one proton, one electron. It's really simple, so it has to be one of the first elements. And also, this all involved dark matter. After that, the theories seem to split. We've got the monolithic collapse and the secular evolution. Monolithic collapse is the universe started out as a big clump and then broke down into galaxies, you know, like when you're at a conference. You got your big meeting, and then you got your little breakout sessions, and everybody gets to do something different. There's secular evolution. That's where the universe started out as small little particles, and then slowly it collected into galaxies. I like this theory because it kind of fits with what we know of solar system formation and planetary formation and also even life formation. Things just kind of start coalescing. It started with halos of dark matter after the Big Bang. It's funny that we call them halos of dark matter because we don't know what dark matter is. According to NASA, they know more about what it isn't than what it is, but it makes up most of the matter in the universe. They know that it's dark, which means it emits no light and we can't really detect it very well. It outweighs ordinary matter like stars or gas or anything made of atoms, really, by about five times. And you know it's there because it's got gravitational attraction. Every galaxy that we know of we believe, is held together by dark matter. And some astronomers believe that dark matter can pull in atoms, which creates regions dense enough to make galaxies. So as the dark matter pulls things together, these particles together in the secular evolution model, eventually we can create stars, we can create nuclear fusion, we can form solar systems, and eventually get to Beyonce. This happens when you produce enough stars you get a lot of solar systems and you get all of these different stars and they come together and make galaxies, also coalescing together. Some of the stars are going to burn out over time because this happens over millions or billions of years and they become globular clusters, which sounds messy, but it's not. And there's also gas clouds like nebulas and rotating disks and all sorts of crazy stuff happening all throughout the billions of years of our history and this universe. What happens is, those rotating disks would attract more gas and dust. And then since there's more mass there, there's more gravity. And that would attract more gas and dust. And eventually they'll form a galactic disk. Does this sound familiar? Are you getting like a repeat, like deja vu vibe? The galaxies then attract other galaxies, or once they form a galaxy, can fly through and destroy, you know what? More on that later. But that's not the end, okay? Edwin Hubble was the first to classify the nearby galaxies, to what we can see. And he put them in two main categories, elliptical and spherical. The more galaxies they spotted, they began to not be able to categorize them as easily. 
so they thought, okay, we'll just make a third category. We've got elliptical and spherical. We'll call this one irregulars. But we know now that these are actually galaxies that are interacting because galaxies are always changing, and there are so many of them out there. They collide into one another. They can make more stars. They can merge together and form all sorts of new shapes. And, and a galaxy, it's more than just stars. It's plasma. It's black holes, superheated jets, shock waves, gas and dust, all sorts of different things all happening in one kind of cloud of stuff. Obviously, the more observation we did, the more we started to be able to pull them out, you know, spiral galaxies and elliptical galaxies and all sorts of things. And they're determined by their shapes. But you can also determine galaxy classifications by looking at how much gas each galaxy has. The more gas in a galaxy, you would have a bluer galaxy with younger stars, and they would usually be spherical. You would have less gas in a galaxy. They're usually redder with older stars, and they're more elliptical. But what else don't we know about galaxies. A big reason that galaxies are a mystery still is because this stuff happens over hundreds of millions or billions of years. It takes way longer than even the history of life on our planet. I mean, we've got all these pictures and we can look at galaxies across the sky and we can see galaxies doing all sorts of different things. What we're really looking at is what happened back in time, right? Because light It's a constant speed, and it's traveling, you know, 671 million miles an hour. And our closest neighbor galaxy is the Andromeda galaxy, which is 14 quintillion miles away. So when we see Andromeda, we're not looking at it now. We're looking at it two and a half million years ago because space is really huge. So galaxies form by coalescing these stars that are forming inside of these clouds of nebulas and dust. And it's similar to a solar system formation. But what about the universe. Because you get, you know, a planet that can get life because it has a collection of little proteins and RNAs maybe. Then you have a collection of planets, gas and dust, and then it's a solar system. You got a collection of stars and some gas and dust, and then you got a galaxy. What about a universe? How do you make one of them? The universe is everything we can see and as far as we can see. It's all matter, antimatter, energy, everything. Today, The universe is believed to be about 10 billion light years in diameter. But 13.7 billion years ago, 13.8 billion years ago, it was basically nothing. And then the Big Bang happened. The Big Bang is something you've likely heard of, not just because of the television series that's fairly successful, but the Big Bang is the term scientists use to describe the initial formation of the universe. You've definitely heard of it. It is one of the most famous theories in science you know, that like evolution. It's a theory, not a hypothesis. There's evidence to show it's real. There's mathematical models and theories and physics and observations of the universe. And everything essentially in the Big Bang Theory makes sense for the most part. There are some things that are not congruous with what we know, but we're not gonna get into that too much because that's, you know, kind of a different thing. But in the beginning, everything in the universe collapsed into a single megadense point. And before that, we don't know what was going on. We have ideas, which we'll get to later, but we don't really know. And we can't study that megadense point because we were part of it. Everything was in there. Then the Big Bang happened. And it wasn't a little dot anymore. Exploded outward. In a trillionth of a trillionth of a second, it was the whole universe. (laughs) But it was only one times 10 to the 33rd centimeters, like the decimal points, rather. Decimal, then 33 zeros, then a one. That was how big it got in a trillionth of a trillionth of a second. That's really small. (laughs) 
It's also really, really hot because it's all the matter and energy in the universe in that one tiny little 33 zeros in a one of a centimeter. It's 10 to the 32 degrees Kelvin, so 32 zeros after a one Kelvin. Essentially, at this point, matter and energy are the same. They're indistinguishable from each other. In far less time than it takes to just blink your eye, the universe blew up by 100 trillion trillion times in size. And then it cooled, and it expanded, and it cooled, and it expanded. You're going to hear that a lot. And it's called inflation theory. As the trillionths of a second ticked by, matter and energy cooled off enough to separate from each other. And matter and antimatter were created. Think of a hydrogen atom where the middle is positive and the electron is negative. That's how we have hydrogen right now. And antimatter would be the opposite of that. And at the beginning, it was half and half, 50% matter, 50% antimatter. We don't see much antimatter today because for some reason there was slightly more matter. And when they come in contact, they annihilate each other and create energy. There's also something called baryogenesis because matter that you can perceive, that we can see, the matter right here, this is baryonic matter. And then that only comprises today 4.6% of the universe. Though at the time, it was still subatomic. There were no actual matter particles yet. Also at this moment, just trillionths of trillionths of a second after the Big Bang began, dark matter and dark energy are created, things that we don't understand yet. We can't perceive them. 26.8% of all matter is dark matter, and 68.3% of all energy is dark energy. We don't know anything about it, so we call it dark energy. Recreating this today are people in the Large Hadron Collider in Europe. And in particle accelerators all over the world, they try and recreate the conditions right after the Big Bang. When they say that, this is what they're trying to simulate. So at that point, more trillionths of a second tick by and cools and expands and cools and expands. We have hot soups of particles, which probably sounds familiar from earlier. At 0.01 seconds, which is an eternity when you're looking at trillionths, cosmologists take over. They show up and they're like, okay, particle physicists, we'll take it from here. We got it, everybody. Because at that point, the baryonic matter starts to coalesce and bond in a process called nucleosynthesis. It forms hydrogen, the simplest matter that we know of. It's one proton and one electron. But let's not get ahead of ourselves because the electrons can't show up yet. So instead, it's actually deuterium, one proton and one neutron. We also get helium. Then it cools and expands and cools and expands. And 100 seconds later, after the Big Bang, the temperature of the universe, the entire universe, is 10 to the 9th Kelvin, or about 1 billion degrees Celsius. Electrons are there, and so are positrons, the antimatter version, and they're annihilating each other, and when that happens, they're making photons. But it's still too hot for them to orbit a proton. They're too energized. Light hasn't actually escaped, even though photons are being created. At the time, 100 seconds after the Big Bang, scientists believed the universe was opaque. You couldn't see it. You couldn't see anything. This is called the cosmic dark ages, and it goes on for quite a while. Light is caught inside of this universe bubble because it's a billion degrees Celsius. It's really, really hot. At this point, matter has started to be created, so we've got three-quarters hydrogen, one-quarter helium by mass, and photons and other particles, you know, dark matter and so on. So then it cools and expands, and it cools and expands, and we've got a month after the Big Bang. It's cooled and expanded, and gravity is starting to slow everything down just a little bit. And particles are beginning to be able to emit radiation. The reason is it's starting to slow down, and the radiation can move faster than the expansion of the universe. 56,000 years after the Big Bang, the universe is pretty big, 
I mean, it's pretty huge. And it's at 9,000 Kelvin. Dark matter starts to kind of collapse on itself, and things that were incongruous in dark matter start to come together. This seems to me, this is my opinion, kind of like physicists being like, and also dark matter did some stuff. We don't really know anything about it, so it's really hard to say what it did, but we know it did something. 380,000 years after the Big Bang, that's the sweet spot. Of course, by the way, I just sidebar for a minute. We're talking about this in years and seconds. That's all Earth time, which is really funny because we wouldn't even show up for 9.22 billion years or something. So we're categorizing this all by the amount of time it takes the Earth to go around the sun, but that doesn't really matter when you're talking about this universe scale stuff. Isn't that funny? It's kind of presumptuous. No, Earth, come on. Anyway, so it cooled enough that at 380,000 years after the Big Bang, it was about 300 Kelvin, electrons begin to pair with atoms, which means all of these ions, all of these hydrogen and deuterium, these positively charged atoms could now grab an electron and become neutral. They are no longer charged. And that means the radiation that had been trapped there forever so far could escape. This was theorized in the 1940s and accidentally discovered in 1965. Another quick sidebar here. We were building this radio telescope, we being scientists. They were building this radio telescope, I think in like New Jersey, and there was this anomaly in their data, and they weren't really sure what was going on. They thought maybe pigeons were pooping on their antenna and messing everything up. So they went out there, they killed the pigeons, but the anomaly was still there. Turned out they had discovered the afterglow of the Big Bang. This was in 1965. They call this the cosmic microwave background radiation. It's everywhere in the universe, and it's left over as an imprint from the Big Bang. Essentially, it's the energy patterns from the Big Bang on a quantum scale that have grown and grown and grown and grown over time. So the quantum scale particles were imprinted on this CMB, and it's kind of like standing at the bottom of a pool. It's everywhere around us. We can't escape it, but we didn't know it was there. And now, if we look at it, it's grown and grown and grown. So these are things that, let me think of it like a movie projector. It's projecting on the biggest screen imaginable. The size of a particle is the projector. The size of the screen, millions of light years across. That's cosmic microwave background radiation. The quantum fluctuations in the universe moments after it was born are now reflected millions of light years across. It's kind of mind-blowing. These echoes set up the formation of everything we have today. All matter, all the galaxies, all the planets, all us, Beyonce, everything set up by this fluctuations in particles in the early portions of the Big Bang. And that's the earliest bit of the universe that we can see today. So everything before that is part of the cosmic dark ages, 380,000 years of Big Bang time. We don't really know visibly. We can't detect it in that way. So then, of course, the universe cools and expands and cools and expands. And over the next few hundred million years, the first stars begin to form. Particles start to attract each other into clouds like we've been talking about. Clouds get denser in parts and birth the very first stars, not unlike what's happening in the galaxies and solar systems around the universe today. And about 250 million years to 400 million years, depending on the source you use, after the Big Bang, we get the first proto-galaxies. Eventually, they coalesce enough to make the first star. The first stars are 100,000 to a million times more massive than the sun that we have in our solar system today. It's also brighter. It's more luminous. And this changes the universe forever because it's throwing heat around. It's changing how things interact. It's a nuclear furnace. And as it's burning this energy, it's changing the fundamental essence of the universe. 
Because when you burn fuel in a nuclear capacity, you have to coalesce that energy into something else. It's all done by fusion, right? You're taking two atoms and you're smooshing them into one atom. And eventually the stars are running out of fuel and they're creating sometimes the first supernova, the first black hole. And that's going to change the universe too. The Big Bang only created hydrogen and helium, maybe lithium, again, depending on the source you look at. Stars were needed to make elements heavier than hydrogen and helium. Hydrogen is one, helium is two in terms of their atomic numbers, the protons they have. So as stars evolve, they take the hydrogen and they make helium with it. Then some of the bigger stars can take helium and turn it into carbon, which is the atomic number of six, and oxygen, the atomic number of eight, and the biggest, the most massive stars, and again, this is over millions, if not billions of years, can take those elements and combine them into other things like silicon all the way up to iron. Stars make iron. This is crazy. But there are limits to fusion. It can't just keep smushing things together until you get to things like uranium and, you know, mercurium and stuff. Instead, supernovae, star explosions, create those heavier elements. And once heavier elements are built by billions and billions and billions of years and lifetimes of stars collecting, collapsing, exploding, we can finally get enough elements in a variety of ways to make solar systems, which we've already talked about. I haven't said it in a while, by the way. Cooled and expanded, cooled and expanded. (laughs) The law of thermodynamics says that that's going to keep happening. We're going to keep cooling. We're going to keep expanding. Gravity is going to hold us together, so we're not just going to fly forever, and it's going to slow down, and it's going to cool off, and then eventually we'll get the heat death of the universe. But that's a whole other thing, so don't worry about it too much. So what was before the Big Bang? (laughs) We don't know. (laughs) We don't really have a clue. There was no sense of time or there's no sense of space because there was... I mean, because there was no time or space, really. There's one study from Oxford that found circles in the CMB, that cosmic microwave background radiation, little concentric circles. And they think that those circles might be from the previous universe, the universe that existed before ours. Supermassive black holes that existed at the end of the previous universe may have caused these circles that they think. They call it an aeon or an eon. One is created, and that's a universe, and then the universe ends, and a new universe is created. That's another eon, and a new universe is created after that eon, and it's cyclical. So once it's created, maybe it collapses and then creates a new one. And if that didn't blow your mind, then I don't know what will. (laughs) But that's how the sausage is made. That's how everything formed. The sausage in this case is the universe, by the way, and you and me and our planet and our solar system and our galaxy and Beyonce and producer Brian, and producer Blair. But that's not to say stuff isn't really happening right now. You know, it may have been on billion-year scales, and it might have been proto-planets and proto-stars and orbits and axes and all of these different things, but there's also really exciting stuff happening in our galaxy right now that we are watching. Thanks so much for hanging out with me here on Seeker Plus. Just a reminder, I'm Trace. You can find more Seeker Plus at youtube.com seeker. You can also find us on Facebook. We make shows about science every single day. Easy to find, easy to search. Just look for Seeker. Wherever you get your podcasts, you can also find more Seeker Plus. And you can find me, Trace Dominguez, on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube as well. Just search for my name. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. We hope you loved this episode. If you did, leave us a rating, share us with your friends. This was produced in 2016 by Blair Battenberg and in 2018 by Trace Dominguez. It was re-recorded by Victoria Barrios, and our intern was Cara McCurlin. 
Special thanks to Will Poor, who wrote and came on the show for the Cannibal Galaxy section at the end. He is now working with The Verge Science. It's super great. You can find them on YouTube as well. Thanks again for listening to Secret Plus. We'll be back next week with more mind-blowing stories from science. I'm Trace. Thanks for listening. 